Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday april 12th 2013 this week episode 280 comes to you from studio d in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes and here with me in the studio is roxy v val bender hi joe hi cliff hi everyone Joining us from Studio C back in McKees Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good day, Cliff. Hey, Joe. How you doing today? Very good. Good to have you back on the line. Of course, joining us later will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Today we're going to have these segments are the IAQ radio trivia question. We're going to have a, a fascinating interview with Sam Rashkin. He's the United States Department of Energy's chief architect. But today we're going to talk a little bit about a book he's written. It's called Retooling the U.S. Housing Industry, How It Got Here, Why It's Broken, and How to Fix It. Looking forward to that interview. Of course, we'll have our usual halftime and roundup features. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, you can always stream our past shows from our website homepage or, of course, download shows from the link that says Go To Show and from down uh, iTunes. You can also get renewal credits for ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC. Just email me at joe.hughes, at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thank you joe Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in the answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krosowski, Comcast Metal Products, Mars PA, who was fast on the trigger and first to identify 
biofilm as the thin layer of microorganisms adhering to the surface of a structure, which may be organic or inorganic in nature, and together with the polymers that they secrete. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, April 12, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Uh, their website is www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. In 1992, Energy Star was introduced by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency as a voluntary program that helps businesses and individuals save money and protect our climate through superior energy efficiency. What were the first products labeled? Back to you, Joe. All right. Today's guest is Sam Rashkin. He's the chief architect for the Department of Energy's Building Technologies Office. His primary role is leading the deployment of successful research for new and existing high-performance homes. Prior to that, he was the manager of the Energy Star for Homes since its inception in 1996. Under his leadership, Energy Star for Homes grew exponentially to more than 8,500 builder partners and over 1 million labeled homes and over 25% market penetration nationwide. Mr. Rashkin was most recently recognized for his contributions to sustainable, sustainable housing in the 2012 Hanley Award. He received his BA from Syracuse University, a master's in urban planning from New York University, and is a registered architect in California and New York. During his 20-plus years as a licensed architect, he specialized in energy-efficient design and completed over 100 residential projects, and he's also the author of a new book titled Retooling the U.S. Housing Industry, How It Got Here, Why It's Broken, and How to Fix It. It represents a comprehensive strategy for reinventing the housing industry at a time of crisis. Let's get a little music for Sam. All right, Sam, do we have you on the line? Hello, Sam. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Great, good, we got you. Oh, great to have you back. I know we got cut a little short on the last show, and we really wanted to get into your book. I've been uh, plowing away at it here, and I, it's been a good read, actually. I'm, uh, you're a pretty good writer, and uh, I like the way you set it up. Um, now, before we get into the book a little bit more, I, I've got a quote here. Let's see. Uh, you've been described by others as someone who likes to knock beehives with a stick. <laughs> Can you give us maybe an example <laughs> of that? Uh, uh, yes, you know, you, you kind of like have this privilege to be an industry observer to, for 25-plus years, travel and watch an industry you love and and you call your shots as you see them and sometimes it's it's tough love you know there's a lot of things that uh can be improved and you call it straight so some people do kind of get rough around the edges with that what's been like the most frustrating thing you see when it comes to housing i mean just something that really kind of gets your goat Oh, you know, there's so many to choose from, but I'll, I'll give you one that that's, we can start with that's, that's really significant. 
we've crossed the building science tipping point. We're building <clears throat> even code homes at a level of air sealing tightness and insulation um, uh, thoroughness that even the worst house allowed by law, a code home, will at today as built not be able to uh, protect the durability and health of the occupants. We've crossed the building science tipping point because the homes are so tight that you basically don't know that you have enough fresh air. And therefore, indoor air quality is not extra credit. It's mandatory. You have to have ventilation. You have to start thinking about source control. We've crossed the building science tipping point in terms of the better insulated and better air-sealed enclosures can no longer dry. So for decades and half a century, we've been building homes without pan flashing and kick-out flashing and good weather-resistant barriers and leaky foundations. And we got away with it because the older homes were so much more um, able to address getting wet because of the thermal movement for the assemblies that they could eventually dry. But the new homes, even the worst homes allowed by law, but code homes cannot dry. So we've crossed the building science tipping point and comprehensive moisture management is not extra credit. It absolutely is a must do if you want to keep the house durable, keep the air quality safe. And the third thing is that the homes are so much tighter and better insulated that the negative air pressures created are greater. We have much more fans in homes at higher CFM. We have clothes dryers at 200 CFM and greater. Uh, amazing super sucker uh, range hood and downdrafts that can go 1,500, 2,500 CFM, uh, central vacuums, the normal uh, fans for air handlers. And it's easy to do pressure on a house to 5 pascal negative or more, which can now start to backdraft combustion appliances if they're not power vented or direct vented. So what really bothers me is we've crossed the building science tipping point. We've got to a space where homes today, if they don't address building science, are at risk for both the builder and the owner, and builders do not have on staff across the board with all builders an in-house building science expert or on retainer a building science expert who's available at all times to look at every decision that's made. That's crazy. Hmm. Building science will only determine if that building will work or fail, and it's not routine for builders to have that in-house. I don't how, what other industry would not have that basic function in-house, how that product works? And so, yeah, that will ruffle a few feathers. Okay. But essentially, I think you really need to, you need to kind of think about that. And there are lists. You know, maybe I'll give you one more thing that I think is uh, real egregious with, with the housing industry. It's that it only has a sales infrastructure that knows how to sell what you can see. So my sales agent or my in-house sales professional working with a builder can show me the granite counter and can show me that the master bedroom's big or has a nice master bedroom suite, but they cannot begin to explain the incredible value of a house that's high performance, healthy, durable, safe, comfortable, affordable. The ability to create an amazing, compelling value proposition, which is truly compelling, is just not part of the skill sets that you see with the housing sales force. So how are we going to get them to build something they can't sell and wind up giving it away? So we can go on and on, but you, you get the point. There are serious, serious areas where the industry, if it can retool and reinvent itself, can grow into an amazing new space 
and provide an amazing product for the American home buyer. I guess it kind of seems like this would be the time to do that, too. I mean, you know, we had that terrible downturn in, in what, 2008, 2009, and, and things were starting to come back. You would think, and, and at the same time, you've, you've had the building cones get to the point, like you just explained, where you know, we're, we're uh, at that building science tipping point. Why? What's the resistance? Why do you think it's been so difficult to, to get the message out that you're trying to get out? Well, there are a lot of factors, and, and, and often the rules are working against the builder, or sometimes they don't understand the rules. But take the sales issue we just mentioned, or I just mentioned. If you're not a big builder, most builders resort to using uh, a normal realtor or real estate agent to sell their house. And a normal realtor will have, let's say, 100, 150 homes in their portfolio, 50 in their portfolio. I don't know. You know, some big number of homes. But they, if the builder is building a really high-performance home and sales agent is showing their clients the various choices that they can make and they convey the amazing difference between high-performance and conventional construction, they wind up denigrating 90-plus, 90 95-plus percent of the product. So you wind up with a infrastructure issue where if builder resorts to relying on a realtor, real, real estate agent, that agent has a tough time. They don't know, if, you know, people buy homes for location, for schools, for kitchens, for master suites, for really special locations and sites. And so you can't risk offending a buyer and make them think that an option they would normally want is not good. So there's one barrier. So it really comes down to the builders have to take, be their own advocate and make sure that the uh, prospective buyers that come to their homes learn about why their homes are so so much better if it's a high-performance home. Cliff, do you have something you want to add? Well, yeah, I, I, I guess uh, I, I guess number one uh, is is really a compliment, uh, and that uh, Sam, you know, you've been described as a unique federal employee. There are a lot of people that are work for the federal government that are involved in you know, regulatory capacities and other types of you know, research capacities, et cetera. And I, I think an interesting thing about you is you're an architect and that you understand, uh, you know, the industry in which you're involved uh, and, you know, that you've kind of crafted an approach that, you know, works in the real world. So, you know, Joe and I kind of take our hats off to you. <laughs> you're too kind. But wait, you know what my approach is really? I love housing. I love builders, and I love the privilege you have to provide people a place to live. And so I really do speak not to criticize, but to be um, you know, a member of the team to be constructive about how we can keep improving. So, And then I, I do think it's important when you present a program to an industry that you have to be able to speak the language to know the re- realities of of the business and know the technical constraints and opportunities and how to frame them. So yeah, that's all important. But at the end of the day, though, I think though, what's critical is I really do feel it's such a lucky uh, privilege to, to work in this industry and work with the builders. And I, I do think that builders do appreciate where we're coming from. There's In the book, you have, you have it kind of broken into five major segments here and and it's the sustainable land development 
good housing design, high-performance homes, quality home construction, and effective home sales. We talked a little bit about sales. That's kind of the last component in the whole thing. But I'd like to back up for a moment and talk a little bit about sustainable land development. And that I probably got more questions on that section than any, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, it seems to me to be tough, Sam. I mean, um, first let's talk about what that is, okay? The components of sustainable land development, at least from your book, are targeted density, durable infrastructure, and uh, livable communities. How, uh, what, how does somebody who's um, a builder affect those issues? I mean, they may not necessarily be the guy that, that put together the development. I guess they have to work as a team. Sure. Okay. Well, there are a number of things involved in sustainable land development. Oddly enough, I'm not talking about sustainability the way most people uh, hear that word, which is green and and um, new urbanism and all those things. When I say sustainable land development, I'm really speaking about developing land so that you will be positioned to have the best success as a uh, as a builder or developer well into the future. So, a, a very basic conflict of, of sustainable development, land development, is one where you get caught up in irrational exuberance and you're buying land rather than optioning land when there's a crazy uh, irrational uh, bubble in the market and that you're building on spec rather than building to order at that same time. And I know builders that are the most successful in every other four components. They built great designs and great home performance. They had amazing quality construction and really good sales and they went out of business because they bought land rather than optioned, and they built on spec rather than to order during the irrational exuberance. So the sustainable land development is being smart about business practices so that you don't fail when you do all the other things right. And it's also doing the things that make sense for where people want to live. People want a sense of community. You know, there's uh, a big issue going on about walkable urban spaces are so important. I think it's walkable social spaces. I don't, I don't know that people really feel they have to be walking around stores and public buildings versus trees and, and open space. I just think that there needs to be ways that communities are fostered, fostered. So what can builders do who don't do land development? Well, they can do things like build front porches, and they can do things like think about designs that don't put the garage up front and, and find ways to receive the garage more to the back and create communities and, and do things of that nature. Um, they also are, are truly uh, able to choose where they build, and they can build in communities that have open spaces and, and have um, they've been more likely to be successful. So there are limitations what you do if you're a lot-by-lot lot builder. But this chapter mostly speaks to the part of the building industry that is engaged in developing raw land <clears throat> And to develop raw land, raw land, there's a lot of basic th things to do, which is to develop land so you maximize natural comfort, to provide critical open space, and also, along with that, walkable social spaces, to provide a, what I think is a quality infrastructure. You don't do the cheapest signs, the cheapest, no, um, uh, no details in, in things like sidewalks and, and fencing 
and and basic details that just really connote a, a cheap community. Um, and, and, and they're just the basics, creating communities that are going to stand the test of time. And that chapter is mostly for builders who are developers, and, and it is geared for them. But if you, are, if you are a small builder, you can still create designs that uh, emphasize that sense of community. Well, and that, the way you explain that is a theme throughout the book, <laughs> and that is that all of these five components have to, you have to, first of all, think about and implement all five of the components and they they work together so your, your good housing design is also a component of sustainable land development like the front porch uh, things of that nature so I, I like the way you explain that and I think it helps to bring out how the book is written in, in a way where you're, you're trying to pull all of these things together in in one holistic approach as opposed to piecemeal well, way, Joe, you know, I think this applies to any industry that makes any product. So, um, you know, it's sustainable business development maybe instead of sustainable land development, and still design is critical. I think performance is critical, quality and sales. And when I benchmark businesses that do those five pieces that are not housing industry businesses, it's so obvious that the outcomes in terms of business are directly connect, connected to those five pieces. So if I look at Apple Computer, they have the most sustainable business development uh, strategy I know of. They build products people didn't know they wanted but have to have once they try them. They're, they're just about how do you make innovation serve the customer. That is such a sustainable business model. It, it, it is, it's so applaudable. And their designs are without question some of the best product designs people have ever seen. Even the retail centers' designs carry through and how the retail centers are designed. Their product performance is, is by far considered the most elegant, the best interface, the most easy-to-use product in the marketplace, and the quality and the maintenance and the, and the, and the, uh, the amount of problems that their products have are so far less than the competitors, and their sales is off the charts. You go into an Apple store, and the enthusiasm, the passion of every single salesperson the ability to sell the amazing performance of that product, it's just so far above everyone else. So here you have a company, all five of the components, and they have more, they have more money on hand than the U.S. federal government. So you look in contrast with the U.S. car industry on those five same basic components in the 70s and 80s, and where they were filling each of those five components, they dropped from 90% of the market in the early 1970s to 45% of the U.S. car market, sacrificing all that market share to the foreign car manufacturers because they did not address those five components. So I think every industry, <clears throat> those five components are essential. And I just think the housing industry needs to realize it really is imperative for us to look at all those five as well. Um, before I leave the sustainable land development, there was one thing that caught my eye and grabbed my attention. It was a profitable development that no one copied. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that segment in the book? Yeah. It, uh, in Davis, California, there was this uh, amazing project um, uh, that was built. And um, I'm trying to think what year it was, but it was um, – uh, must have been in the 70s, but Village Homes was a um, unique 
project. It was built by uh, Judy Corbett and her husband, and there's a few hundred homes. And what they did, they said, at no extra cost, we can lay out every street, even though they have interesting configurations, not like really super straight streets. So every home has north-south orientation. And then they built all these incredibly vital social spaces. They had places where people were growing food together in the community and trails and social spaces and centers where people would gather. And they had um, amazing commitment to follow through with homes that got built. So they um, they took advantage of the north-south orientation. And every home had uh, you know, the old passive solar principles that I now call natural comfort. So their homes had a fraction of the utility costs of everyone else around them and their homes are filled with much more daylight, and they just oozed comfort with all the warm surface temperatures in the winter and the much cooler surface temperatures in the summer. Uh, it was just an amazing development. And, you know, for decades and decades, now we have all this data that shows like 17% higher cost per square foot resale value. Their homes are on the market for a fraction of the homes in the neighboring communities. Just in every way you can measure success, village homes, was just um, everything you would want as a developer, but no one copied it. Maybe one project, Prairie Crossing in Illinois, might be something close to it. But here, if you looked at every metric, um, it was just an isolated one-of-a-kind rather than something everyone else, at least a few other developers you think would give a try. So it's amazing sometimes you have these successes, and then it's not amazing because you look at if you look at basically what happens, um, real estate was such a golden child for so long. If you built it, they would come, they would buy it. People weren't discerning enough. People weren't knowledgeable enough about how to sell a development like that. That was so much better. So it, it went up being this odd little outlier off in the Central Valley of California rather than something that was copied by at least a few others to give more examples of how compelling uh, these approaches that I talk about are to, uh, to building better housing for you know for all Americans. Well, Cliff, I, I wanted to jump to good housing design. I know you had a question on that one, or do you want me to take it? Um, it, it doesn't matter. All right, you uh, can the, take it. the first question under good housing design, Sam, is you know, why does housing design trump everything else? If it does. I just think if you look at virtually every industry, including housing, design's emotional. And that, you know, people buy an emotion and they justify with the facts. So if you're not creating emotion, you're not creating, again, a sustainable business. So I believe design, in effect, is the trump card when it comes to almost any business, including housing. Now, uh, most agents will tell you that virtually you're kind of either in the game or out of the game within like 30 seconds when a person comes to the front door and walks through. And so you got to get the design right. And so what's really fascinating about trying to write this book was trying to, in effect, uh, define what is good housing design. And in the book, you have the components of good housing design. It's fit homes to the site integrate natural comfort and right-sized homes and then avoid complex complexity and fads. But right-sized the right way. That's an important distinction. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do that one first because I know that's one that a lot of people, you know, um, have 
questions and, and even pretty strong opinions about uh, what is a right-sized home and, and, and the right way? Well, first of all, why is this such an incredibly powerful concept for the housing industry? And what I'm saying, again, with analogies to the car industry, if you look at a car from the early 70s that the American car industry was promoting versus the cars we buy today, you know, they're like two-foot shorter wheel, uh, wheelbase length, uh, much, much smaller vehicle, much, much lighter, yet we have the same legroom, the same headroom, probably more trunk space, more comfort, more, more quiet, uh, much more crash resistance. Everything's better because we've right-sized cars the right way. And consumers like it better. And there's so many things, there's so many reasons why we like our cars better today than how they were built back then. And some of it's technology, and some of it's just doing good design the right way. And so the big idea, the big concept here about right-sizing the right way is what I want the industry to do is to take advantage of the 10 concepts for right-sizing that I, I speak to. And in the outcome of that will be that a 2,000-square-foot house will feel like a 2,800-square-foot house, and a 3,000-square-foot house will feel like a 4,000-square-foot house. It will live with the exact same satisfaction of space, just the way the car today that's so much smaller has more satisfaction than the much bigger, clunky cars we built in the 70s. Then here's the big rub. I want the builders to take all those hard cost savings, a thousand, eight, nine hundred square foot of hard cost savings, and invest that in quality construction. <coughs> so instead of just pocketing the money, put in really good quality cabinets, put in really good quality fit and trim and, and hardware, and put in really good quality windows, and put in really good lighting systems throughout the house. All these things are transformative. Investing in designers who know how to take advantage of color. Color is transformative. If you take and invest the hard costs you save in size, you wind up building like a Lexus instead of a Corolla. Everything will feel so luxurious in the house. The customer satisfaction will go through the roof. Plus the energy savings from having less square footage, plus energy savings from building more technology, and, again, the comfort, the health, dur durability, Investing those hard cost savings from right-sizing is the big idea in this book, one of the biggest that I'm advocating. And the American home buyer will fall in love with that product. I've bought three homes in my lifetime. Builders build on the lowest first-cost business model, but they're also building dreams. How many of us get to buy homes how many times in our lifetime? And they are fulfilling our dreams. And somehow their vision is that I, my dream is to have the lowest cost products throughout my house. Every single one of the three homes I've purchased, I've had to rip out the lighting switches, the light fixtures. I've had to rip out the cabinets. I've had to change out the hardware. Often I'm putting in crown molding, you know, the trim that was missing. My vision isn't that a house feels like the cheapest product you can put in it is used throughout. It's that a house feels sumptuous. It feels like it's made with good quality construction throughout. And I have to redo every house I bought that's been built by a traditional builder. I what get, a difference the industry would experience if they built a quality product. You know, I get the impression that um, two of the areas you see as those that could be pretty easily fixed and, and that apparently aren't 
And when I thought about it myself, I thought, wow, these two areas really aren't well addressed in most homes, was the lighting and the color. Kind of caught me by surprise how much you emphasize those two issues in homes. And when I thought about it, though, it made sense. Uh, lighting, again, is transformative. If you ever go in any space, go in a Virgin Airlines aircraft versus a basic traditional carrier and look at the feeling when you go in a Virgin Airlines aircraft. They invest in all this advanced lighting design and the same kind of you know, claustrophobic small space that an aircraft is becomes an entirely different experience. Builders don't realize what lighting can do to reflect on who they are as a business and what kind of dedication they have to quality construction. But they put in a light switch to an outlet in the bedroom. They put in the cheapest standard fixture they can find it off the wall in a dining room or uh, in an entryway. Lighting is several key components. You know, it's task, it's ambient, it's mood lighting. It, it, all those pieces can frame and shape what a space is like, and they can emphasize lots of different ways that you use a space. Sometimes you want a very light mood. Sometimes you want vital light. Sometimes you just want task lighting in certain spaces to work. And there's lots of ways that it, it, lighting can be integrated and effectively made to completely change the sense of how a space works, and it's ignored. It's outrageous that lighting experts are not used in the housing industry, and that's just one example. Another big one for me is storage. Every house should have a storage system. Now, my car, I've listed like 30 things that I can put in my car because the thoughtful engineered design that went into the car, there's a space for my tire, a place for my sunglasses, a place for my cell phone, a place to plug in my MP3, there's a place to keep extra change or a place to put in my uh, manuals, a place for my dry cleaning, a place for the tools. I can go on and on and on. In a house, people don't even know where to begin to put things like their vacuum cleaners, their umbrellas, all the extra shoes, all the extra clothes, places to put uh, ironing boards. I, I have a list of like two pages of stuff that we put in homes. And if builders were thoughtful and would engineer a storage system, Homes would not be cluttered, and nothing affects how that home affects, reflects on the builder and the enjoyment of the home as clutter does. Clutter creates stress. It creates um, uh, an aesthetic that's so undesirable, and we could have a clutter-free system or storage system in every house, and we don't. Again, we can go through all the 10 principles, the right size and the right way, but these are just common sense thoughts that I'm really putting together. This is not taking a lot of genius. I'm just saying, much like Apple, what could we do to a house that people even begin to know they didn't want, they, that they wanted, but once they see, they would have to have it. We can completely transform the industry. So builders are building homes people have to have. And that's the goal. We have to take a short break here, Sam. We're going to take a, a break and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in about 90 seconds with Sam Rashkin. He's the chief architect at the Department of Energy and the author of a book we're discussing here today. And I'm going to get the, the right title, Retooling the U.S. Housing Industry, How It Got Here, Why It's Broken, and How to Fix It. We'll be right back.
Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with Sam Rashkin. Sam, do we have you back on the line? Yes, you do, Joe. Great. So the, the next thing, there, we were still in the design, good housing design, and there's one more question I have to get in. Uh, it's about avoiding complexity and fads. What what was the worst fad in the history of housing? Maybe the one I think is the worst was the one I observed when I moved to California in 1981. Virtually every single home in the Central Valley, in the foothills, in the uh, East Bay Hills was built, and it had to have, nothing else would be acceptable, it had to have a wood shake roof. Now, unless you live in California, you don't appreciate that this is an area that's designed to burn. It rains intensely often for about two or three months and grows a lot of fuel, and then it doesn't rain a single day for the next nine months, and it dries the fuel, so it's virtually an area that will just spark and ignite at the least provocation. So any lightning storm or inadvertent uh, cigarette or sometimes arson in some cases will create these fires that are so intense in all the western states, including California. I remember the aftermath of the Oakland Hills fire. This is the hills right next to San Francisco across the bay, and it just, you know, there's this dry kindling that just caught fire uh, from, I think it was a lightning storm. It just burnt the entire, you know, just massive humanity of, of those Oakland Hills, houses everywhere, with only one house left standing that had a clay tile roof. Hmm. So there's a clear, you know, a clear case where the fat is you put in wood shake roofs, but why would you put kindling on a roof in an area that's designed to burn? Just a crazy fad. The By far the worst fad for me that I'm just living in and just surrounded by is facade architecture. And that's where what you do is you pretend like people only see the home from two dimensions, from the front, and they never see the side, they never see the back, and you put in a nice, rich architectural material and detail 
only on the front, you know, the brick with the pop-outs and so forth. And then you have these sides in the back that are just a cheap siding, the most cheap siding offered in the marketplace. And we pretend that people never even see those sides. Or what's really the most egregious would be when there's a short step back, even in the front elevation, where a garage steps back to one or two feet, and then you go to the next flat surface space in the front. Just in that one or two foot stub wall, they'll put the cheap siding to then go to the expensive brick siding. And so that's like a billboard saying to any passerby, this is the kind of house we wish our whole house could look like in the showing in the front. <laughs> And all that stuff on the side is what we can't is, is really all we could afford. That's all you can it, it's so it, it, it's so un, there's no integrity to that design. I rather use the rich material around the base of all four elevations, and then transition to a less costly material above. But the whole effect of the home, the whole appearance, would be much greater. But those, you know, we can go on with other fads like very complex roofs and double height spaces that no one likes to clean or really even enjoys. And those, these fads just come along and no one asks questions. Is the emperor wearing clothes? And then, of course, en masse, it tends to spread across the industry. I've got another one. I don't know if this is a fad or if it leads into the next category, which is high performance homes. And that is. HVAC and ductwork in attics and in crawl spaces. Is that a fad or is that, I don't understand what. That, I think you're, you're leaking into the next um, uh, component of the industry, which is home performance. Okay. I think essentially, you're right, though, it's a little bit of both because it requires a little bit of design integration. You know, one of the 10 steps of right-sizing homes the right way is integrating systems. And very simply, in, in two-story homes, we can maybe just upsize the floor framing a bit and allow, therefore, enough space to run the ducts between the floors rather than having to go to the expense of more ducts and horrible performance running the ducts through the attic and the air handler in the attic. Uh, in single-story single homes, we, we, there are lots of techniques and design strategies that would get your ducts inside the conditioned space, drop ceilings, pop-up uh, trusses, there's even an advanced technique where you actually could put the air handler in the living space but put the ducts in the attic and encapsulate and bury them underneath the attic insulation. So without going into all the technical detail, the point you're making, though, is so true. It's, again, appalling that we would run 55-degree chilled air through a 140-degree attic. And it's appalling that we'd run 115-degree um, heated air through a absolute freezing 20, 15 degree attic. It's the most um, extreme uh, climate condition that the, uh, that you could conjure up is the attic. It's more often more difficult than the outside, outdoors. For instance, it's 95 degrees outdoors in the winter, summer, but an attic can get up to 140. And so we really need to, one, not have the ducts there because it's so inefficient, and two, avoid all those penetrations between the house and the attic that are necessary for the uh, supply grills coming from the attic ducts. And so, and then you need an attic hatch to go up. That's another hole and you have recessed lighting and it, it really, we can do so much better. And so this is a design issue and it's also a performance issue. And, and it's a real, it's a difficult issue for people in, in the industry where they're going in and trying to solve indoor air quality problems and, um, you know, they're, they're trying to help with, uh, 
renovation, etc., and they're trying to help people with their home performance and, and get it better. And it's just really difficult at times to get people to understand why it's such a bad idea in the first place to have that there. But then on the second place, it's like, well, their first well, question it, is, it why did they put it? <laughs> Let me just interrupt for a second. It, it, again, it, getting back to shaking beehives, all we need to do is educate people. When you see a home with ducks in the attic, you need to understand that's a design failure and it's a quality failure and a performance failure. And if we just would educate people with that understanding, that, you, that that's just a defect that the builder is forcing upon you, the homeowner, to have to live with. Then, you know, if people understood it that way, and that would shake a lot of people up, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. That's really what it is. It's a defect. Okay. All right. I like that. Cliff, any follow-ups? No, I'm just busy taking notes. Cliff, <laughs> so you know, Sam, Cliff does a, a blog after each show, and, and so he's taking notes like crazy back there at the uh, the old studio and uh, trying to make sure he gets this all memorialized in his blog. So I will keep going here. Well, you know, Joe, yes. I, I do these two and four-hour four seminars on the book around the country, and because there is so much detail to this whole subject, and it, it, it even that I, I can never even get through more than two or sometimes three of the components, even in the four-hour sessions. There's just so much detail around what it, you know, just can we take a common-sense approach to just reinventing this industry and, and making our home so much better it's it's really a, it is a tough thing to get into it like an hour segment here i was trying so hard to figure out how do i get you know, i'm thinking now how much we're trying to cover in these two small segments and it's just the tip of the iceberg it really is and it's really well done the way you did the book now i haven't gotten through everything i just got it midweek here but I I love it. I mean, I, I are you not ready for the quiz? No, I'm not. <laughs> Give me another another couple of days here over the weekend, maybe while I'm uh, the opening day of Trotsa here. So I may just go sit in the woods for a few days. And uh, actually, I like to read out there. But anyway, high performance homes. Um, why isn't comprehensive building science applied more commonly to these new homes? What are we doing wrong? We're not getting the message out to the builder community, or is it happening? I'm just not seeing it because I get caught in on problem homes. Well, actually, my frustration is that um, energy codes are starting to become really an issue in many parts of the country where all they're doing is raising their, uh, like all you have to do is get a higher HER score mm-hmm. and, and skip the building science. So like if you're in Boulder, Colorado, I think it just it keeps dropping and dropping the HER score as your homes get bigger. But that may be actually exacerbating the, the result if people don't realize that the building science has to be applied as well because of what we talked about earlier, that tipping point, just getting a lower HER score will make the house more and more airtight and more and more uh, thoroughly insulated. But then you have a tighter home and you really have to be really good about the ventilation. And then you have a house that can't get wet because it can't dry. And then you have those combustion safety issues. And if the code isn't all about addressing the building science as well, then you're creating potential risks for both the builder and the buyers. So building science is absolutely critical, but really performance, I think what's really new about, I think, the way it's covered in the book 
is I expand uh, home performance to go beyond building science to also look at comprehensive indoor air quality as, as a must-have. You can't do the building science and then not think about source control, dilution, and filtration. And then you cannot ignore disaster resistance. You cannot finally create a building that's worthy of lasting hundreds of years, which, which it will, unless a, a prevalent disaster risk manifests itself. And if you don't think about designing and, and incorporating simple measures that can address and help mitigate that disaster risk, then you've done all this other building science and air quality improvements and efficient components for what purpose? And so I think the big story here is that all these things are critical. The building science is really important, as you suggest, but so are the components, so is the air quality, and so is the disaster resistance. And in many markets, the water uh, conservation is as more important than the energy. And within efficient components, I include water conservation as one of the must-haves as well. Uh, okay. Now, I know you got Cliff's ears perked up when you talked about disaster uh, being disaster-resistant. Cliff, I just want to make sure if you wanted to follow up there, you get one. Well, yeah, I guess it's one question, Sam. You know, you know conventionally, uh, in the old days, they built houses out of stone. They built houses out of wood, and uh, those materials have proven the test of time. Uh, you know, they may not have been well insulated, but those building materials... Uh, you know, have lasted. You know, when you said uh, building homes today that would last, uh, you know, hundreds of years, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 I guess I haven't seen it, and I, and I really just find it difficult, um, you know, to believe. Um, well, look, look around you. I mean, people are in a house built in 1950, 1930, 1920. Are they tearing their houses down? They're not. And, uh, the trouble is that when they retrofit those homes and start insulating them and putting in some air sealing, but don't wind up being able to do it in a systems way that you could with new construction, you know, anything short of a gut rehab, you wind up now creating risks that may make those old homes that would have lasted hundreds of years maybe exposed to a, uh, um, a durability issue that now will undermine it. And so the reason, one of the reasons older homes lasted that you're referring to is that, yeah, so the old stone homes leaking moisture like a sieve would be okay because there was not air tightness, there, was not, uh, there wasn't any insulation and the moisture issues that could dry. So we have to realize that that won't, probably work much more. We have to provide buildings that don't cost five and six thousand dollars a year to heat and cool and 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 for other energy uses. So we have to make homes more efficient. And now those old buildings we'll see will go through some interesting challenges. But I will submit to you that anything we're building today, if we use the checklist from the program I do, Challenge Home, and from Energy Star, and we build those homes with all the building science, they will truly last hundreds of years unless they do hit a disaster uh, 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 event. And therefore, I also say we need to prepare for that as well. But what do we base that on? These are new building materials, Sam. We don't know, you know, you know what's going to happen 50 years from now. You know, we, I, do. So... we do. That's why, that's why we do the research. Programs like Building America, DOE, are so important because they do do the research. They do know what will happen 50, 100 years, and we do know 
with confidence what will work and what won't. I absolutely have no no issues. Do you know when you buy a Toyota home in Tokyo, it's guaranteed for 60 years completely? And all the homes in Europe and many countries are guaranteed for 30 years or more? We do know, know these homes are going to last. These, these are tried and true building science principles. You, know, you can't break the laws of physics. You may want to, but they, they tend to sustain themselves pretty well. So if we, if we control airflow, thermal flow, and moisture flow, these buildings will last as long as you do the basic maintenance. You do have to replace a gutter eventually. You do have to redo the siding. You do have to, after 50, 60 years, maybe you have to put in new windows. It's not like they're going to last hundreds of years doing nothing. But the basic foundation structure, the, the key component systems will last hundreds of years, just like the buildings in Europe have been lasting for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, I've got a question. Uh, really, it deals with roofing. You know, the, the house that I live in now is you know, a pretty new house, and it's already had roofing issues. The house I lived in previously was built in 1928, and it still has the original tile roof on it. And, you know, you see tile roofs, and uh, you know, I've seen them in Europe. I've also seen them in some places in, in, in California. I'm not sure why we don't see more of them, because they seem to, although they cost more, they, they, they just seem to last, uh, you know, for really, really long periods of time. Are you talking about ceramic, slate, and other stone tile roofs? Mostly ceramic. I guess these would be the, I, I guess ceramic? The, the ceramic tile, yeah. Yeah, those are rated for 100 years. The issue, of course, is the underlayment only is rated for about 50 years, so you might want to put in more investment into like a peeling stick or a real significant underlayment that can last a real long time. But, um, but yeah, a roof, if, it's, if it drains and does what it should do, like that will last um, quite a long time. You know, the, the basic... The basic durability functions that you know that 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 damaged materials are, are freeze thaw cycle and UV degradation, and those are if you can if you can build materials that are going to not be affected by those two main uh, components of of uh, degradation, then you're good. Thanks, Sam. Before we go to a roundup, I have one other question under the the quality home construction part of things we, we we hit high performance homes of course we skimmed over a lot of these but let me go to the quality home construction what old construction technologies and techniques are being protected oh so many so many are you know conventional wood framing versus some of these advanced wall systems you know I, i'm still a big fan of structural insulated panels i think Sometimes the extra investment in something like insulated concrete forms is well worth it. Uh, there's something called precast concrete foundations. That's an amazing technology. Take that one technology. A precast concrete foundation compared to a conventional poured concrete foundation uses about one-third of the building material. Now, because it's poured in a factory versus on site, it's 5,000 versus 2,500 PSI concrete. That means it's virtually waterproof coming to the site versus a much more uh, porous, a uh, port-in-place concrete that we do in the field. Hmm. So it's already much, much more water protective. But on top of that, it comes with an R10 insulation uh, contiguous around its perimeter on the inside. So it already is insulated to code with extra space to even do more insulation. To put insulation in a conventional 8-inch thick versus 4-inch thick precast assembly 
we have to build another wall. So now we're losing about 80, 90, 100 square feet of useful space in our basements just to add insulation that we don't have to lose in, uh, with a precast concrete foundation. And uh, it's so much more level because it has to go in level because all, four, you know, all the elevations are dropped. And you, once you do a good job creating a level foundation, the rest of the house is level. So you have less cracking and you have, have less uneven floors and cabinet installation issues. There's so many things better about this technology. Plus, and you can put it in the place in the winter because you don't have to pour in cold weather like you do when you do it in the field. So here's precast concrete foundation walls. Hardly anyone's using them. They have so many benefits from water protection, from better thermal protection. I would suggest that those basements feel more like an above-grade space than a conventional wall because it's harder to do the comfort details as it is with those systems. So there's a technology that's amazing. I love structural insulated panels because of the same reason. I can basically build faster. I have a much, much like super high-performance wall assembly that has so little room for error because it's made in a factory to such high precision with no gaps, no voids, no compressions. No, a wonderful technology. Uh, one of the ones that's going to come along that I think is significant is uh, something that we buy as consumers. We, a clothes dryer is an egregious appliance. It sucks in about 150 to 200 CFM contiguous for all the, let's say, 60 minutes it runs. That means it's pulling all the air in the house through the clothes dryer to absorb moisture and then exhaust out through the back vent. Now, in contrast, a heat pump clothes dryer only uses 4 cubic feet versus 12,000 cubic feet. In other words, it doesn't pull in any air. The air inside the chamber is um, squeezed so the moisture come out, comes out through a condensing cycle, it's called, and then a heat pump keeps generating heat to reheat the air that keeps removing the moisture. It's slower, but you're not taking all the air in the house, heating it and exhausting it, you're just hitting that one four cubic feet of air and letting that do the job at a fraction of the cost of a conventional clothes dryer. Europe, about one-third of the clothes dryers sold are these heat pump clothes dryers. In America, I virtually say not even one-hundredth of one percent of the clothes dryers sold. And so there's a technology that's not going to homes, and you avoid the whole clothes dryer event, which is a big thermal hole to the attic or to a often to outside through an outside wall. So... You know, there's all these interesting technologies out there that have amazing benefits. So we can, you know, we can go through a long list of them, but they're just sitting there not being used. That's, uh, this has been great, Sam. I've got to go to a roundup. We're going to ask one more question. Can you stay about five more minutes or you have to run? Uh, no, I can, I can take uh, five more minutes. Great. Thank you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw hide. Cut him on, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out. Ride him in, Let's, Cliff, I just want to make sure before I go to Dieter, did you have any final questions? Um, I don't think so. Okay. Let's get Dr. Wow on the line here.
Okay, Dater, I'm going to I'm going to give you my time. We've got about four minutes left. I know you've probably got a page of notes. Uh, yes, I do, and I have to play tennis at one thirty. <laughs> uh, okay. okay. Anyway, anyway, uh, Sam, congratulations. I have been listening carefully. Every point you make, I have been trying to make for years and years and years, and miraculously, nobody listens. <laughs> I don't know why. Anyway, the first one I have over here is Andy. Andy is a good friend of mine. I turned him on to the show. Andy won again. Here is Sam Raskin. Okay, that is you. Uh, I have a house which is a, by now about 40 years old, and it leaks. Uh, there is no... The uh, 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 Tyvek didn't exist in those days. Uh, but I agree with uh, uh, Sam so much, it's just unbelievable. Why the heck didn't the developer give me a better garage door, better fixtures? I would have gladly paid $1,000 more on the total price of my house, and I would have been a heck of a lot happier. Yep. And you know what that would cost you? $4 a month. Yep, at best, at best. Yep, yeah. that's one beer. And then yeah, I what, what's, what's, what's most unfortunate is I can make a house completely comprehensively address indoor air quality concerns for less than $3,000. So it would cost a homeowner about $12 a month or like 35 cents a day. And look what they spend in a cup of coffee or in bottled water. Oh, and $40 billion a year to buy organic food. I couldn't food. agree with you more. I mean, people it won't is spend, unbelievable. They, yeah, people I won't spend 30 cents a day for, for an absolute safe and just uh, chemical-free house. The other thing is that you mentioned, and it went unheard everywhere, we people are like wolves. We are herd animals. And if you go into a community, you move to a community where you can't walk, where you can't talk to people, where you can't meet people, where you can be, you know, you have to go to happy hour to meet <laughs> people. Yeah. I can drink a beer at home for a dollar, and where I go for happy hour, it costs me three dollars. Doesn't matter. But it's one of those things. And I wrote right underneath this years ago, 30 years ago. Why? Why were there so many Australian tennis players? Nobody knows the answer. I read that somewhere, and I said, of course it makes sense. When you develop a new area, for every block or every two blocks, whatever the formula was, I don't care. For every new block that you developed, you had to put a tennis court in. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. doesn't, quote, you know, that doesn't cost anything. I mean, of course it does. I, you know what I mean. Let me give one example. If you as a developer took the least desirable piece of land you have, either next to a road or, or has some other conditions that it might be, uh, prone to flooding or something, and you made that a dog park, a community dog park, how much more attractive would your development be to all those major percentage of population of people who have dogs? Yep. To think, have a place where, as a community, you can go and have your friends and you hang out while your dogs run around and even put some play structures in for the dogs, maybe a little kiddie pool for them to run in. What would that do to attract people to live in that development? Yeah. Just because you thought that people have dogs and would love to have a place to hang out together as a community 
Exactly right. In fact, perfect. Just the other day, there, uh, there are two ladies. They are walking their dogs in front of my house. Every time I see them, I walk out and say hello to the dogs. <laughs> there you I go. like that. A little sense of community. I like that. The other thing, and again, Sam, you were 100% right. Look of what we did with house development compared to car development. I, div- uh, I supported Detroit for many, many, many years. I never, ever bought any garbage that came out of there because they told me what I want. They never listened to me what I wanted. And the same thing is happening with the house developer. Today, Detroit makes a wonderful product, and it is fine. 30 years ago, I wouldn't touch it. The next one I have here, Virgin Airlines. How much does it cost to make it a little bit more uh, comfortable to walk into an airplane? Well, with the garbage that is happening today, where I flew in the old days, I use my car or I don't, got, uh, 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 I don't go there at all anymore. I make it with a phone call. Clutter in my house. Joe knows that. <laughs> Nobody ever thought where I should put my uh, vacuum cleaner. It's, it's sitting in the corner of my living room. <laughs> Every house, it's the same. And, like, all the industry has to do is look at their product and how it's used to come up with all these innovations. It, it's just, again, it, it's, again, why I'm not trying to be critical. I'm trying to say you have this opportunity. You don't even realize. I'm not realize. critical either. I just say we know how to do it. Why the hell don't we? <laughs> it's as simple as that. Why don't you just embrace the Apple philosophy of making a product that people have to have? I tell you one thing, and you said it. I Unfortunately, I'm stuck with Bill Gates stuff, so I don't have Apple. Uh, a friend of mine from Germany just visited, and she needed to buy one of those adapters to adjust from uh, the plug in Europe to the one in the United States. The question comes, why the heck do we have two different ones? But anyway... I was for the first time in an Apple store in one of the local malls. Was I impressed? I I couldn't believe it. I mean, we walked in. Everybody was smiling, looking at us. We walked two more steps. Somebody said, can I help you? We are looking looking for this and this and this. He said, oh, we have it right over here. Uh, In seconds, we were out of there and we were happy. A great experience. And I will, I will shut up, well, maybe a little bit, but well, I'm looking at the dryer over here, but you, you said that already. And basically, and you can use that. You don't even have to quote me. And my father taught me when I was, whatever, 10 years old or so, when I was thinking for myself, my father told me, he said, Dieter, don't buy anything cheap. I am not rich enough that I can afford uh, to buy something that is cheap. And I think this is exactly what you said. For a couple of bucks more, you get something that you enjoy, and, and uh, you don't have to repair it, and you don't have to replay it. Uh, we, uh, uh, replace it. That's right. And uh, what, uh, uh, Virgin Airlines, Third Animals, my house, yeah. Exactly. Anyway, uh, and what is even... I think more important and wonderful is everything you said about building sciences and building houses can be applied to just about everything else, whether it is gardening or building a car 
or bicycle or making watches or uh, uh, office furniture. That's right. That's right. Well, Sam, I want to thank you so much for joining oh, us. It, theater. Thank you very much, Sam. As always, Theater. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, for joining us at halftime. Just before we go, Sam, is there anything you'd like to add or anything we missed that you want to make sure people hear? Uh, again, just the only thing I would say, Joe, is I, I'm so anxious to share this um, this ability to rethink what we're doing in housing. Uh, if anyone wants to really uh, talk about doing these kinds of seminars, they can um, get me at Retooling Housing HSG, uh, Retooling HSG at AOL.com, and uh, be happy to kind of uh, talk with folks about that because it's really important. We, we can do all this great stuff with indoor air quality. We can do great stuff with sustainability. We can do great stuff with building science. But if we don't really also affect the way the industry does the other four components besides performance, there's always a risk that these important concepts don't kind of permeate throughout the industry. We have to be almost as a system, and we can't be isolated in, into just one area. So, again, retooling HSG at AOL.com. I'm happy to uh, talk to folks about our seminars. But otherwise, thanks so much for the conversation. So much fun. Well, thank you for joining us, Sam. Sam Rashkin, uh, Chief Architect, the United States Department of Energy, and uh, formerly with the Energy Star Program. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest today. Of course, thanks to the Z-Man, my co-host in McKee's Rocks. Z-Man, thanks again. No problem. It's a and pleasure. I'm sure you're going to be typing up a real nice blog today. Uh, of course, Roxy V at the controls. Great job. No glitches. Thanks, Joe. Uh, signing good. Uh, to our technical <laughs> director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, And to today's guest, Sam Rashkin. Of course, to our growing group of loyal listeners, thanks for joining us this week. And please come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio.